Hello, beautiful souls. We bring you conscious content filled with empowering information. Designed to align you with the fulfilling freedom of activated awareness. I am Rachel Alcyon. And I am Daniel Alcyon. Welcome Welcome to to the the Ecstatic Existence Podcast. Hello, lovely listeners from around the world. Welcome back again to the Ecstatic Existence Podcast. We join you every week in bringing you exciting and inspiring guests, leaders in health, wellness, and spirituality from around the world, and also people that live authentic and unique lives. People that are not trapped in the matrix and living inside the box. Living an ecstatic existence. Yes. And today we have some amazing examples of that. And it's two people today, not just one. We're graced in our lovely studio by two amazing beings that have a very interesting story to share. So sitting next to me is the first member of the team I'd like to introduce. I'm Terry, Terry Carranza. And uh, at my left is... Therese Charvet. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So Terry and Therese, often referred to as TNT. (laughs) Or I lovingly call them the girls. (laughs) (laughs) Even though we're in our 60s, right? Yeah. We like being called the girls in our 60s. Or the grandmothers. Right. Some people refer to me too, and like, we can do that. Yeah. (laughs) So Terry and Therese live on a place called Sacred Groves. Mm -hmm. It's here on Bainbridge Island, Washington where Rachel and I also live. And Sacred Groves is a very unique and interesting place. I will say that I've never been to another place anything like it before. So that'll be my first question is, what in the world is Sacred Groves? Well, we call it an eco-retreat, but it's more than that. So we actually have about three or four different things we do on the property. Um, one is it's a community of people who live on the property. Yes. At this point, there's eight of us who oh, share wow. the land. Mm-hmm. And how much land is there? Ten acres. Ten acres. Ten beautiful acres. Yeah, eight of the ten are in a forestry designation, and are we've made a commitment to grow trees. Mm-hmm. So we just have a lot of trails through the land. Um, And so all the little cabins and structures that people live in are clustered on one end of the property and the rest of it's wild with sweet little trails and a meadow. And altars. And altars everywhere. Yeah, there's really cool like altars and art installations Mm -hmm. tucked away that will surprise you as you walk through the forest. I love it. Yeah, Yeah. one of my favorite things there is there's like a really cool, um, beautiful pit Oh, to yeah. do earthing in, like really deep grounding work, you mm, know, like climb. The earth shrine. Yes, you like climb into the mother and and lay there. It's so nourishing. And there's these big, beautiful wings, these right. like angel wings that have been uh, artistically laid out around this space, all with like crystals and stones. And it's so beautiful. So, yeah. a woman, who, well, there's several layers of story around that earth shrine. More than 10 years ago, a man came to us. Of of dear dear man, and said he wanted to feel closer to the mother, and and he wanted to be buried in the earth. So we said, well, okay, you dig you dig the hole, we'll, <laughs> we'll bury we'll him. bury you. So he did. He went out and he dug a hole. And one night in August, there was a full moon, and we had a bonfire in the meadow just a few steps away, and he got in that hole, 
naked. And we proceeded to shovel dirt over him. And that was the, uh, it, it was a very challenging experience for me. Hmm. Um, I had not buried anyone before. Or especially no. alive. Or since. <laughs> and whether alive or not is still, actually no, anyway. <laughs> so we, uh, we buried him, put dirt all the way up to his neck, and he managed to stay in that pit for about almost an hour, at which point the the ambient temperature of the earth is about 55, 57, 58 degrees. Pretty cold. So he had by then sucked all the heat out of himself, and we then unburied him. Mm -hmm. um, but since then, we've just have experienced so much the the visceral feeling of being held by Mother Earth is what that what that Earth Shrine has yeah. done for us. And actually, that shrine <coughs> predates Martin in oh. that that hole was there. And my mentor Saban Pusome, who just passed yes. a week and a half ago, so I want to mention her name and send her prayers for her passing. But in doing ritual with her mm. and her tradition from Africa was to be in an earth shrine was to be kind of in a hole in the earth and really commune with the intimacy of the earth. So that that's what its kind of original calling was. It was a natural depression. Mm. And then it's just gotten sort of further mm. developed. Yeah. Yeah. So, And then the, the wing part of it, there's now there's some beautiful, an outline of wings in white stones in the forest duff. And those were laid out by a woman who regularly comes to the groves and spends um, often her moon time in the moon lodge. And she's an artist herself. So she came to us one month and said, do you mind if I do some thing? We're like, you can do whatever you want. So after she left, we went into the woods and there around the earth shrine, she had laid out these beautiful wings. She had uh, developed a, an easier path to get into that depression and then she had hung these little crystals from the trees that were overhanging it so that it looks like you're in this magical star forest yeah it's beautiful truly and so there's these types of art installations and healing structures and places to be all over the land and like you the girls said there's lots of different living places some of them are pretty interesting and unique they're all kind of one of a kind, and Terry, you built most of these structures, correct? Um, a lot of them. When I moved onto the land in 2004, there were about eight structures. Some of them were legitimate, like the, the log cabin that Therese and her husband built back in the mid-70s, which is a jewel box in and of itself. That was on the land as well as several wood sheds and a blanket shed for the sweat lodge, various Structures the moon like lodge was there. The moon lodge was there. And um, I was like a pig in shit when I landed at the groves and I started building <laughs> with a kind of fury, furiousness. And um, finally in 2011, Therese, and I, Therese said, that's it. She cut me off. <laughs> <laughs> you can't build anymore. We had, by that time, 24 structures. Yeah. And wow. um, they all, I mean, and they're not all dwelling. Some of them are the chicken coop, I think we're counting. counting that was the, the most recent build. Was <laughs> Anything that has a roof. And you have like a dedicated art studio. 
Oh yes, I have an art studio. Oh, yeah. so cool. Yeah. 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 Um so anyway, I'm my I I try not to do any more new building at the groves. Right? <laughs> you just have to keep up with maintenance. Mhm. <clears throat> Which you do beautifully. So you've sort of started to touch on what some of these structures are used for, but before we go down that lengthy vast road, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear a little bit of your background story. Mm-hmm. So Terry, you you were saying that you have done carpentry and construction and tell yes. me more about your life before the groves right out of college i got into the carpenters union i was the first woman apprentice in oakland california and worked union jobs building high rises and parking garages and hospitals and schools and all these buildings that essentially the contractors needed their quota of women in order to receive federal funding so that's a lot of how I found my way onto construction sites. And what year, roughly, what time frame is this? 1977. Yeah, so it's like it's been kind, 40 of, years. kind of unheard of that women were mm. doing that work, really, right? You're yeah. A trailblazer? I, well, I feel like I was in the, the third wave of women in non-traditional jobs. There are the Rosie the Riveters in uh, World War II. And then just before I joined the Union... Um, within the a couple years before, there were women who were picketing outside union halls and who were actually sleeping on the sidewalks to show the men that, yeah, women were determined to get into, into this kind of work. So I was in the second wave after these women had sort of broke down the doors and uh, lawsuits were filed. So I was one of the first women to get on, the, on their skirt tails. And, and I said this a lot in my 20s that I love the work, but the men were really difficult to work with. Um, a lot of resistance and a lot of... Uh, it was a pretty threatening and not very welcoming job mm. scene. Um, I moved up to Seattle in uh, 1996, and shortly thereafter uh, stopped doing union carpentry work, construction work. And founded my own company, which was a freaking blast. Yes. <laughs> Such a great time. I just hired these people who I loved. One of my favorite stories is I hired this guy who had sort of come to me through one of my clients. The client said, oh, yeah, Larry, he's a great guy. He knows, you know, he's been doing this work, and I, I think you'd be a great fit. So I hired Larry. And then I found out that he really didn't have white the breadth of skills that I was hoping for. But by then I was so enamored with, you know, we, we had, we were, we had so clicked that he just became my right hand man. And actually it was a really good trade for both of us because he's an artist. So even as I was teaching him as much as I knew, and I told him that I taught him everything that I knew in about five minutes, (laughs) um, that he then shared with me his art skills. So he, you know, he really sort of helped me light up the artist in me. So it was just a win-win. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. And so how did you come to the Groves? A mutual friend, a woman who had been coming to the Groves for years, uh, ended up meeting me and telling me about this great place that she goes once a month. And she she was very sort of cautious about how she presented this because I was still hanging out in Seattle. I was in Ballard. It was the center of the universe. I was right within walking distance of the library and the store. 
and a lumber yard and a wine bar. So why would I want to go to Bainbridge Island? <laughs> why? It took her months to get me out to Bainbridge Island. Right. And when I finally did come out to Bainbridge Island and met Therese and met the Groves, I felt like, part of it, as I say, I felt like Alice going into the, into the rabbit hole and popped up into a place that felt like home. That is how it feels on the island and especially on your land. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. When you're out in those woods, in the forest trails, it feels like you could be a million miles away from civilization. It mm-hmm. feels like you're, you know, the nearest road could be who knows how far away. It's exactly. really yeah. kind of sheltered, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah. I remember, Terry, what, one of the first times mm-hmm. I met you, one of our first interactions, you had said you and I were walking through the woods, uh, a different woods, mm-hmm. and uh, barefoot, and you said, oh, I do this all the time in the night, and, and my scared self was like, mm-hmm. oh my god, you walk barefoot through the woods in the night? Like, mm-hmm. who would do that? That's like, you could get murdered out there, <laughs> and, and, yet, <laughs> um, and yet when you come out to Bainbridge Island and to Sacred Groves, it is so safe. It's it literally feels like the Garden of Eden out mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I want to go walking in the moonlight through mm. the woods barefoot all the time now, mm-hmm. all over this island. Oh, so yeah, thank you for that inspiration and mm-hmm. that planting that seed and and healing. You know, I, mm-hmm. I wish all parts of our world could be mm-hmm. like that. Like, yeah. yeah, and so Therese. I'd love to hear more about you uh, and your life and how the groves came into your world. Yeah. Yeah. A long time ago, 40 years now. Yes. I was 25. Wow. 26, and I just had a baby. And my former husband and I were feeling the need to put some roots down. And he was helping just kind of accidentally because he didn't have any building skills, but a man that he met was building a log cabin and needed a second pair of hands, and David was laid off from his job and said, well, I can help you, I've got time. And so they were putting a log cabin together, and the property next door came for sale. And uh, we bought it and said, let's build ourselves a log cabin. And mind you, neither of us had any building experience or skill. So, but David uh, was and is a great researcher. He read every book he could on building log cabins and uh, picked out the best method. And with a book in one hand and the chainsaw in the other, we built that little cabin and raised our daughter there. And basically had the land just with our house and our little tiny family for many years. And at the point that my former husband and I separated, I first put up a little uh, trailer on the property so that I could stay on the land but be in separate quarters. And over the period of time during the separation, I ended up with the property and I had always had a vision of sharing it uh, with a community of people. And at that time, I was also beginning my explorations into women's ceremonial work. So were you already doing midwifery at that point? I began doing midwifery when my daughter was about six. 
So um, we'd had the property for a few years, and I had had kind of a calling, to, a very clear calling, to go into midwifery. Um, that's another whole story, but I began doing midwifery in 1981 and separated from my husband in 94. So there was some years uh, where I was very busy away from the property, delivering babies. I was also involved in national and international midwifery work. I was one of the founding members of the Midwives Alliance of North America and the Midwifery Education Accreditation Agency. And so I was really active out in the world with midwifery organizational work, as well as doing um, births, and eventually moved from practicing to being the director of the Seattle Midwifery School. And then through my associations with midwives came into my understanding of women's spirituality. Right. Um, first and foremost, viscerally, yes. by having my hands in birth, which is such an amazing miraculous spiritual slash physical slash spiritual experience yeah yeah how how many babies would you estimate you've helped bring into the world probably somewhere between 350 and 400 so not a huge number Um, you were doing this all at a time really when uh there was still a push to be in the hospital and so you were part of that wave of real trailblazers you know like the penny simpkins and all those big birth names right you were like right yeah in that big wave of i i was kind of in the second wave but um you know just as an example of that the seattle midwifery school where i got my midwifery training which was started by women who started training in midwifery with some friendly doctors that that offered to help them get started. Uh, They started the Seattle Midwifery School, and I was in the first group of students that went through the school after the founders put themselves through. So wasn't quite the first wave, but pretty close behind. Yes. And then was really part of the whole movement of trying to get midwifery reestablished in a more credible way in this country because we pretty much lost ground. By in 1960s, for instance, there was virtually nobody doing midwifery. Mm-hmm. And then the, between the feminist movement, the back-to-nature movement, the self-help movement, <laughs> um, all those things kind of coalesced together to have a lot of women say, we are not going to the hospital. We're going to stay home. We want midwives. And some women got drafted as midwives without any training, just with their own intuitive strength and the wisdom of the archetype that lives in all of our bodies, of course. I was lucky to have some training. Right. Um, wasn't quite as brave as just to do it. but um, Well, and there's still a lot of work to be done because still it's still really hellacious and grotesque and really a lot of disempowerment in uh, in the birthing industry yeah. and the Dude. medical to Industry. both the mother and the child. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Those things are very much better in some ways. In other ways, they're cosmetically better, but women are still disempowered, shall yep. we say. Yeah, and mistreated and objectified. And yeah, yep. so yep. Uh, we we actually have another episode that's dedicated to that topic with Stephanie Dawn. Go back and listen to that. 
Um, and I believe that, you know, it's such a, it's a topic that I'm so passionate about that I'd like to continue to revisit it and shed even more illumination upon it because that's, we still have some work to do oh, yeah. in the birthing field. Yeah. So. Cool. I love that. That's so juicy. Yeah. So there's a, some word on the street that your last birth was quite an eventful one. What can you say about that? <laughs> Well, it was a dear woman who's almost like a daughter to us. And she had some other midwives, because I'm not in practice anymore. But, of course, I, I'm always available for backup and support. And she has a set of twins that are, that are six at this point. And we thought we were just going to help with the twins. But we dropped by. She was in labor and... She was in hard labor. In fact, she was in transition. In fact, it looked like the birth was imminent, <laughs> and the midwives weren't there yet. Oh, no. <laughs> so I got to happily deliver that baby. Cool. And that was just um, a kind of a gift for all of us. I think she'd really wanted me there, and I'd really wanted to be there, but we were both being sort of respectful of each other's privacy and boundaries. Right. But Spirit took care of all that, and... It was a beautiful, supportive, and blessing for Mama and for me and for the baby and for everybody. And you synchronistically gave uh, help deliver a baby on the ferry too, correct? Oh, that's correct. That was about four <laughs> years ago. Where I just yes. sometimes you just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Right. So did they get on the intercom mm -hmm. of the ferry and say like? Is there a medical professional? Or? They did, and I thought they were looking for somebody for a heart attack, right? I mean, I right. wasn't, and we had just gone through a whole drama the day before. I have a family drama. I was kind of exhausted and was sitting and having a cup of tea, but I was actually on my way to Bastyr University for the once-a-year appearance I make to talk about the founding <laughs> of the Midwives Alliance of North oh, America. Wow. So I'm sitting there drinking my tea, and I hear this call for medical professionals, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to go there. Somebody's having a heart attack or something. And there are four elevators on the ferry, and I just happened to be sitting by one, and that happened to be the elevator they brought the woman up on. Oh, I'm getting because chills. If they had brought her up on any of the other three, I would not have heard what I heard. But I heard a woman in heavy labor. The call that you know well. <laughs> and I'm like... I just, I stood up, I walked away from my coat, my tea, I just, I know what that sound is, and I'm here to help, you know, da, 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 the midwife is here, so, um, of course, there was a few other paramedics, and that kind of uh, practitioners kind of responded to the first call, and when I said I was a midwife, the waters parted. <laughs> they were like, oh, good. Yeah, take so, her. <laughs> yeah. So that was another beautiful experience, and uh, uh, everything went well, of course. And, you know, that's the, for me, because my nervous system, those long labors and unpredictable hours were rather hard on my nervous system. But when I can just show up and do it, yeah, and I don't even have time to worry about it. I just know that I'm supposed to be there helping out. So oh, how miraculous. So, so, yeah. And so now you've created this space. <clears throat> you have this lovely land. And you found a way to merge both of your skill sets together. You have an interest in spirituality, especially woman's studies and woman's spirituality. And you have this gorgeous forest land and some buildings. Right. Mm. 
So, sounds like some magic is brewing. Yeah, some magic is brewing. And I say that I still do midwifery, but I'm more now midwifing women's hearts and souls Mm -hmm. because we do uh, women's circles and women's ceremonies. And really, uh, much of our work is about helping women come into their full power and into believing in themselves and shedding the sense of I'm not good enough and to feeling that they are strong and supported and even in the weaknesses and hard times they have, there's a certain sense of solidarity because they hear that other women have those too. So it's not like, oh, I'm the crazy one, I'm the alone one, I'm the only one that struggles with depression or with family issues or with addiction. It's like these are issues that a lot of women deal with, and there's so much solidarity and support in women's sharing in circle and singing and drumming and being out in nature, feeling Mother Earth's support and just that grounding and the grandmothers, Terry and I get to sort of represent the loving support of grandmothers, which so many women don't have in their lives or, you know, in their family of origin. Right. And we still live in a world, in a culture that would rather have women stuck in disempowerment and in competition with each other. Mm. Um, And so it's so beautiful that you're nurturing and fostering a space in which women can be witnessed in sisterhood mm-hmm. and safe and all that like jealousy and competition and women f- still fighting each other is like completely out of the picture there. Yep. It's just women loving each other and honoring accepting, each other. honoring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like the groves itself, really the way that you two speak of it is so beautiful. It really is like um, an entity of its own, like a being, you know, like yeah. she's alive and she just has created such a safe container, like a real mm-hmm. vessel for women and people to show up exactly how they are, show up yeah. authentically mm-hmm. and kind of even get into some stuff that people might not feel safe to do elsewhere. Like mm-hmm. one of the big pieces of work that you both do is grief work, yeah, helping people really move through some some deep emotions that they don't feel another outlet for. Right. Yeah. Right. What can you share with our listeners about grief and just a little bit, you know, so they have a, a picture of what a grief ceremony even is like, why, why, is why would you need too? that? And like, mm-hmm. what the heck do you do? Well, this is where I have to once again, mention my mentor, Saban Fusome, because um, she was my mentor in grief work. And she comes from a culture Uh, where when somebody dies or there's a big loss, everything stops in the village. And for three days and three nights, the drums go. And there is grief is expressed in a very outward way. And there's support and there's validation. And this is so in contrast to our European-based culture that is so repressed around grief and where people feel that there's something wrong with them because they're still grieving a week later or a month later or a year later. Um, So I went through a period in my life where I struggled with a lot of deep, deep grief and sought out mentors and found Saban Fu and did her rituals. And she validated for me, what I felt internally, which was that the grief I was 
caring was bigger than my personal grief. It felt multi-generational. And she validated that. She said, the grief that's unexpressed and repressed is like an entity that gets passed through the generations so that, um, you know, a child can be born just feeling this heavy load of grief. Yes. She took the way that they grieve in her village and adapted it to a sort of weekend workshop format in in our culture, said that really she felt a lot of the poverty and mental angst in Americans is their lack of expression of grief. So she started, she and her husband, Maladoma Somme, also would conduct grief rituals and still conduct grief rituals. I think Maladoma is still doing that work as well. And um, so we modeled our retreat after her. And it's just a beautiful thing because grief is a universal emotion that every human being on the planet experiences. But in this culture, people feel like there's something wrong or it's shameful or they're embarrassed and they have to apologize if they cry. And so to be in a group of 20, 30 people and share the heaviness of your heart and to cry and to hear other people share the heaviness of their heart and to cry and then to get, and we do, we get the African drums going. We have this chant that goes and people go up to the altar and they scream and they weep and they wail and they they rock and they roll and they dance and they work with the body to just express, 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 and to feel supported rather than alone and isolated. It's absolutely life-changing. And we have been doing that work. I started doing that work in 2002. So I'm at, you know, about 15 years. This is 15 years of offering grief work. And, um, it's pretty amazing transformational work. And so then after all this big outpouring of deep and heavy emotions and everybody's cried and weeped and wailed, is there something that's done to kind of boost everybody back up and kind of close that loop? Oh, yeah. But it's, it's people don't all weep and cry and wail, certainly not throughout the weekend and not at the same time. Some people actually come to a place of where they've, they've cried, they've released, and they feel empty. Um, there's actually a lot of laughter that happens in a grief retreat because yeah. the grief isn't a singular emotion. I, I see grief that it comes through in waves and people have about a 20 minute capacity to be in that really intense, in that intensity, the intensity where they feel like I'm never going to be able to stop. But the body has such wisdom that it can handle about 20 minutes of that. And then people take a rest and they're, their lives come back in and sometimes they'll go back into that deep emotion, but sometimes they're just like, whew, that was enough. And then they, they laugh or they talk. And then a while later, perhaps we do another exercise that allows that emotion to come back through. That's incredible. And I think that body's capacity that you're talking about um, and the, the fact that it can only be handled in waves and short bursts leads to its more elusiveness. And, and so, you know, when I hear the word grief, I have grieved. I, you know, of course I've lost things and felt attached and then had it ripped from me and, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes repeatedly. And so that can be very painful. But I think that because it is many emotions, it's hard to kind of pin down and people, 
in our culture may just think, oh, I'm depressed, mm-hmm. li- mislabel grief as depression and then get medicated for it yeah. or, mm-hmm. or self-medicate for it. Um, I mean, what else could grief be mistaken for? Maybe it comes out as anger mm-hmm. um, or like just comes out all sideways because it's so challenging and so not accepted. Yeah, I've heard that depression <clears throat> is repressed grief. That's what happens when you're clamping down and stuffing it like something is dead inside. Right, mm-hmm. yeah, and you just go numb. And anger often is on top of grief. Like, a, a lot of anger gets expressed at our grief retreats. Um, and people will scream and yell, and then under that is that grief. So the two seem to be pretty close. And um, and anger, especially I think for men, is a more allowable emotion than grief. Right. So, um, but a lot of women feel anger too. And yeah, and then this the suppression of the grief can lead to addiction. In traditional Chinese medicine, uh, the lungs are what store mm-hmm. the right. grief, mm-hmm. and so I'm convinced that all smokers have grief that they're not processing. Mm-hmm. And I smoked for. Uh, gosh, 15 years. And so once I started feeling my feelings, I uh, didn't need that anymore. So, yeah, I think that the smoking is related to the grief. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really powerful work and something that, you know, isn't done very often. Like you said, Therese, people don't even know how. They don't right. know that it's accessible or available or okay to go there. So that's one piece of the multi-level, multi-layered big work that is done out on the sacred groves. Right. And that work includes men. So the women's mysteries work is one piece, which is women only. But the grief work is for men and women. And we Mm. actually have a beautiful man who's part of our facilitation team because we want to encourage men to grieve as well as women. And you know, something, there's really something to be said too, just about holding space like you know tara you're talking about this coming in waves for people and maybe after you know 20 minute cycle or something they have a little more clarity and in that moment as somebody else might be going through their process the ability of being able to simply witness somebody mm. without judgment or and fixing oh, and fix and like running and saying, oh, oh here have a tissue and like it's okay it's okay yeah you know and just being able to watch somebody go through their shit yeah is really big it it's is. it's a big honor and a big responsibility for yes. people to hold. Mm-hmm. So exactly. I actually get so annoyed when people are having a process or I'm processing something and then the tissue box gets handed over. Mm-hmm. It really stops it right in its tracks yes. and it's a whole subtle cover up of like, oh, I want you to be okay. I'm because so, because I'm, I'm not okay. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so it's like, I'm a big boy. I'm a big girl. I can I see where the tissue box is. Yeah. If right. I need it, I can get it. Right, right. now, I don't so... care about the snot going down my face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's one of our little rules for Love the grief that. retreat is don't No end. fucking tissues. Yeah. <laughs> Just, it's there. They can get it if they want it. Yeah. Well, I, um, the, the story I tell is when we've done um, whaling lodges, which are short three-hour sort of grief retreats. And I would um, be holding the container and I would watch somebody who wasn't emoting. You know, somebody who's like, and I would think at the end, well, that person just didn't get into it. This person was off by themselves. They were just sort of standing there stoically. They didn't sort of like enter into the whatever the field was. 
And then at the sharing at the end, the person who was standing, what I thought, not doing anything, would say, I had the most profound experience. I felt so much release, so much opening, so much change. So that was a really big teaching for me of grief has such a wide range of expression that it doesn't look just like one thing. It doesn't look just like crying, sobbing, being angry, or being loud. Yeah. People can grieve in all kinds of ways. So that was great. And part of the value of a group grieving experience Mm -hmm. is we learn by watching each other. Because like you were saying, Daniel, people don't even know how. Because in a lot of families, there's no open expression of grief. So it's like, well, what do you, how do you even get it out? So to be in a group where you can see, oh, wow, that's, oh, look at, you know, it's, we learn. We, we find, oh, it has many ways of coming out. And then you get to experiment and explore with what works for you. Or I feel like in our culture, grieving is only associated with death. Mm-hmm. And, and like, I went to a really incredible bodywork training when I was probably 21, and I'd just gone through a huge breakup, ripped my heart out, mm-hmm. oh, it was, like, so dramatic and so angstful, and I actually was paired up with this woman, the instructor was so wise, he said, I'm putting you both together because you're both grieving, her son had just uh, committed suicide, <sighs> and so, uh, and I thought, oh, well, her grieving, of course she's grieving, her son, her only child, you know, mm-hmm. taken instantly. And I thought, and then, wow, oh, he's comparing her grief to what I'm going through. I never would have even thought that a going mm-hmm. through a breakup was a form of grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now I'm able to tap into the subtle, you know, grieving of like, uh, oh, I'm having attachment to this. And I recognize that it's attachment and it's not maybe an unnecessary attachment. And yet I'm going to like mm-hmm. feel the little bit of grief that I need to feel so that mm-hmm. then I can move on. You know, when the uh, Daniel has two beautiful daughters and so mm-hmm. they would come on the weekends mm-hmm. and be here and it'd be so fantastic. And I couldn't figure out like why the fuck I was so depressed on Monday morning. Like wiped oh. out, like, like can't do anything. <laughs> and I just realized, oh, I'm going through a grief every time yeah. they go. And so once I recognized that it wasn't, as challenging anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The grief comes in many different forms. It's not just death. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's a part of life. Yes. You know, it's not, it doesn't just happen when people die, as you said. Um, yeah. And so this is just one of many aspects that you do. You hold different events and uh, sweat lodges and many other things. Maiden ceremony <clears throat> for the young girls. Yeah. yeah. And for older women. And like for older. Dance. Yes. Older women who never had a ceremony to honor them. Being we do that women. once a year. Beautiful. And so in addition to all of that, people can actually come and stay at your eco retreat. Is this right. correct? Right. We are now on Airbnb. And we rent out our two little yurts. They're 19 foot in diameter. And they um, just to to be in the round is just a really delicious experience. (laughs) And most people who come through just claim that the the rest was beautiful. The place is beautiful. They just the magic just seems to ooze in through the walls, which is. Yeah, truly being in a place where there's no corners Mm -hmm. or no angles Mm -hmm. is uh... Very therapeutic. And then, you know, the the roof of the yurt is basically a pyramid. It's a rounded out pyramid a bit. It comes up and there's a a round oculus in the middle. Oh. A skylight. It's a skylight. Mm -hmm. And it's round. So on the small yurts, they're 
three feet, I think, on the big yurt, the one that we live in, is a six-foot, five or six-foot diameter. Mm-hmm. And those yurts, so the Airbnb people are come when we don't have events and retreats that we're running, so that we can reserve those when we need them for our retreats, mm-hmm. and then when we're not doing it, then we just are open to the public coming and staying in those spaces. And so anybody that planned on visiting Bainbridge Island, hey, maybe you want to come out and have a private session with either Rachel or I, a Mm. prime space for you to stay would be at Sacred Groves. Yeah, absolutely. And so (laughs) people could... You would be well held. Very well held. Maybe spend a little time in the the earth... Earth shrine. Earth shrine. Yeah. Or the labyrinth. And your garden has a real sweet pulse with all those chickens running around. (laughs) Oh, God. This time of year, every everyone looks scraggly in the garden. The right. chickens and the kale. Right. <laughs> yeah, beautiful garden, beautiful land, so sacred, true to its yeah. name. Yeah. And people could find that by by searching Sacred Groves on Airbnb. Yeah, probably. And you have a website, sacredgroves.com, right? That's it. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Well, pretty amazing. You two have found such a unique way to carve out a life for yourselves. Mm -hmm. It's completely Mm non-traditional. You live by your own rules and you've created a real healing sanctuary for so many people. I love that word sanctuary. It really is. And first and foremost, we get to live in that sanctuary. Mm -hmm. Terry and I get up every day and are just like, really? This is our lives. How could we be so lucky? We get to tend the temple. We get to tend the yeah. temple. The temple and, tenders. And, mm-hmm. and just to inspire you, we put all this together in our 50s. Right. So it wasn't like we were young spring chickens when we were doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, we were building on all that we had done through our 20s, 30s, and 40s to build our skills and the land that my former husband and I bought when I was in my 20s. So it, it, Who you lovingly call your husband. I don't know oh if that's yeah. a, a term that our listeners are familiar with, but I sure hope it catches on. <clears throat> Instead of saying mm-hmm. my ex, no. blah, 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 the husband. I know. He's, it's so wonderful. He's still a big part of our family. <laughs> and um, yeah, so so it's, it's never too late to realize your dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty spectacular. And this is just the tip of the iceberg, I feel like, uh, when we are talking about all that Sacred Groves is and everything that's offered there and the depth and breadth of each of your knowledge and wisdom. And your own personal backstories and what led your paths, you know, to coming yeah. together is a yeah. very, very interesting. And yeah. something else that's cool that these ladies are doing is they're the, the wisdom they're teaching women and men, right, to guiding them to be elders mm-hmm. and really take on that role of the wise elder. What is there something else that you'd like to say about that? Well, we launched this program last year, 2016, um, called Passage into Elderhood, Becoming a Wisdom Keeper. Um, partly it was our own journey to make sure that we were on a wisdom path and we took some uh, programs that other people offered and realized that several of the pieces that we already offer could be part of a rite of passage into elderhood. And grief work is a piece of it, because if you go into your elder years with a baggage of unresolved grief, 
you are not going to be fully alive and no, be able be to share your gifts. You're going to be old and sick and right and old and yeah, and gr- and not just grief, but unresolved regrets, mm-hmm. um, and just unfinished business. Mm-hmm. So we realize the grief work that we do, the sweat lodges, um, the quest work, where you really go deep into solitude and silence and connection with spirit and nature to replenish yourself as a source of vitality and generativity, that these are pieces that are really important for us as elders so that we stay in touch with the vitality of life and have some gifts to give through our 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 90s if we're lucky enough to 200s. live that long. Yes, that's yeah, my Rachel goal. and I are going to live to at least 140, yeah. bare minimum. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so what I see you each doing continuously, repetitively, is going after these huge subjects within our Uh, the establishment that aren't being addressed and really bringing so much beauty and healing and light to it, you know, with the women and the grief and now this elder journey. I mean, in our culture, we just tuck the old people away Mm -hmm. and the old people don't have really much accountability. They're just like... Well, I'm I'm retired now. I'm ready to die. Plop yep. them down in front of some soap operas and call it good, right? Yeah, or and casinos. That's it, oh. another favorite place for elders these days. It's like, really? Right. That's no, There's nothing vibrant about that. And I see both of you as so vivacious and filled with light mm-hmm. and life and love. And it's so uh, inspiring to be around. And so how cool that you're offering this to people that are sort of entering maybe one of the the later if not last phases of their life where they get to re you know just do some assessment of like what do i want this to be like what have i not checked mm-hmm. off my bucket list what needs to be healed here i mean this is it's like this is it yeah and i i feel like one of the, one of the things that we offer um that is pretty i don't know if it's unique but it's something that's close to my heart is that we do this with a lot of uh, ritual and ceremony because I feel like so much of this culture wants us to try to figure it out in our heads, in our brains, and there's so much wisdom in the rest of our body and in, in community and in calling in help from the unseen realms. Our practices that is the glue that has brought us together as, as peoples before, let's say, this modern era where television is now the glue, where we talk about our TV shows instead of having a deep experience with one another. When I first came to the Groves and experienced my first sweat lodge, number one, I was terrified. I wasn't going to get in that lodge the first time I arrived. I had to, I had to make sure that people were going to get out of that lodge alive before I got in one. And then when I finally had the bravery, the courage to get in a lodge. What happened for me is that I felt myself crack open and a wealth of information or knowledge or something came into me that I'm still allowing to come in. And how I would describe it to people was I would say it's like shamanic therapy or it's like 10 years of therapy condensed into one ceremony. There's so much movement and uh, healing that happens in these in that realm. So that's my sense about not just sweat lodge, but any of any ceremony or ritual that you engage in with people, and 
drop into this level, into this deeper place, amazing things happen. Right. Shifts happen at this spiritual and emotional level, not just at the intellectual level. Because this intellect is only a small part of us. And so much for us to transform and be truly as big as we have the potential to be, we need to engage with those unseen realms and work in the realm of ritual and ceremony. And uh, then we can come into much more fullness mm -hmm. as of our humanness. Mm -hmm. Definitely. It's about bringing the sacred back into each mm -hmm. moment and the holiness even into the, the mundane mm -hmm. tasks. You know, yeah. so much of that has been taken out of the way yeah. that people live. Yeah. So like bringing, you know, that all back into every moment is so beautiful yeah. and necessary. Yeah. And I think that that's what people experience when they come to the groves. They, they feel the magic, they feel the healing, they feel the awe and the wonder. And I think that what they're really experiencing is the near constant gratitude that Therese and I have for not only our lives, but the land and the, the beings who live on the land. All my teachers, there are several groves of, um, of teachers on the land. Yeah, yeah um, I, I'd like to pick up a bit on that because I feel that the medicine people of the old tribes mm -hmm. that walked those woods for countless, not just centuries, but millennium. Mm -hmm. And those energies are still in the land, and mm -hmm. they have been my best teachers. So for 40 years, I've been a student, the spirits of that land. Mm -hmm. And it's because of the teachings that I have gotten from the spirits of the land. And the Terry also has been taught by the spirits of the land mm -hmm. that we hold what we hold there. And a lot of the magic that people feel on the land is not us. Yeah. It's that we have carefully tended and honored and enlivened those ancient medicine energies of the land and people feel that mm -hmm. and we feel it and we all get to bathe in it yep. and benefit from yeah, it. Yeah, the tree spirits and the meadow spirits and the ancestors. Yeah, it's yeah. so beautiful. And so just imagine this. If this if that is calling you, if you think this sounds amazing, come out, visit beautiful Bainbridge Island, book yourself an Airbnb, stay in a circular yurt out in Sacred Groves. Yeah, attend an event. Yeah, attend an event. And then call up Rachel or I and come get life activated. I mean, Ooh, man, yeah. that'll just blast you right open. Yeah, <laughs> talk about forward progression. Yeah. yeah, turbocharged. Yeah. And we need you to do that. We do, especially yeah. now. Yeah. Now more than ever. Like, yeah. the, now, the time is now. The yeah. time is now. Yes, it is. And the time is now to continue spreading this mission and this message by sharing it with others. So if this episode has really enlivened you, inspired you, turned you on to whole new ideas and concepts you didn't even know were possible, then tell other people about it. Share it with others. Share it with your friends, your family, and uh, keep spreading the word. Yeah, and we're listener-supported, so please do go over and check out our Patreon account. 
This is a place where you can become a patron of the arts by choosing to make a monthly contribution. You decide the value that the show offers you. You figure we come out with about four full-length episodes every month, so one a week. Sometimes more. Sometimes bonus episodes, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so if each episode is worth just a few dollars to you, worth ten dollars to you, I mean, how much value do you get? dollars to you. (laughs) So you decide your own level and you become a sustaining, contributing member of our support tribe. Yeah, there's various giftings that we give you at each level of donation, and you get to take pride and satisfaction knowing that you get to help spread this really beautiful message of love and of ecstatic existence, how to how to really live that. So become a member, because it takes a lot of time, money, and energy to produce this show, and we're actually at the point now where we need to upgrade, because we're like, oh my gosh, we need to start deleting deleting episodes and we don't want to do that no because we look back through all the amazing guests that we've had and like, like no, who do we, we got delete this 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 like none of the i don't want any of those shows They're to go so away good. i want them to be available for you all for free yeah. so we've also chosen to do the show completely ad free we don't take on any additional advertisements or outside sponsors that keeps the interest really pure and we don't have anybody else telling us what to do or what we can't say or that we can't drop an f-bomb so we just want it to be authentic and real for you all yeah, um help us get more bandwidth yeah <laughs> You can reach out to me, Daniel Alcian. Email is ecstaticexistence at gmail.com. You can check out Ecstatic Existence on Instagram, ecstaticexistence.com, and uh, reach out to me. I love being in support for you. And I'm Rachel Alcian. You can find me at rachelalcian.com. Also, I love connecting on Facebook and Instagram. So come follow me, friend me, and know that there is so much love here for you. I would love to be of support. Reach out for a lifeline. I know what that sound is, and I'm here to help. You know, <laughs> dun, 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 dun.